So if we go into another question, maybe Avi, you sort of touched on this, but but you know, do you have any advice for policymakers or urban planners about about how they should think about technology and how they should balance it with other considerations? Yeah, I mean, if I think if I sort of look at the two groups, so you've got a policymaker sitting next to you. Yeah, so I should be very careful. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think um, it's it's a it's a really big challenge um, when it comes to policymakers making decisions about technology adoption. Um, you've got um, you know, public money uh, and you've got risk. So there is to, to truly, ad- the, the reason the private sector is able to do what it does is the risk appetite and um, the risk paradigm is completely different. Uh, public markets or, or, or governments have a very different risk calculus. What I would probably say to policymakers though is what is the risk of not acting and and um, what is the risk of not failing fast? I mean, government should be allowed to fail. Um, government not government, government um, pilots should be allowed to fail. They should be allowed to experiment. Government shouldn't fail. <laughs> um, but um, I think there, and, and what we're seeing with a new generation of policymakers, um, I'm seeing it all around the world with people that I talk to in the US, I talk to in Europe, They there is a greater willingness to take a risk, um, whether it be a, a giant, you know, a significant IT upgrade and um, you know, using a, 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 a known brand like a SAP or something like that, just because the brand is there and it's and it's safe, but you'll pay above the odds and and probably get a, a much more cumbersome um, system than a, a new tech um, company that will deliver something flexible, streamlined, and at a much cheaper cost. Um, I think um, there, there is an opportunity to take greater risk. I think is probably what. I would say, uh, obviously, I, I'm glad I don't have to sit in that position. I'm allowed to take as much risk as I want to. I'm allowed to fail as many times as I want to, as long as I achieve more times than I fail and my achievement, the, the successes are bigger than the failures. But we, uh, the, the idea for a poli- uh, the, the idea for policymakers, I think, would be just to change that risk paradigm a little bit towards um, towards risk, or maybe to create a safe space to, to do pilot. Yeah. Um, Amy, do you have a perspective? Yeah, there's there's certainly something around that. I mean, I think I think one of the reasons um, I've been putting this role, I haven't had a chance to ask the Premier, though, <laughs> as to why, but I think there's something in there around courage yeah. and willingness to partner with the private sector and have a go. Um, but in terms of uh, the policy, I think some of it we need to look to our consumers uh, for a bit of an indication as to where they're willing for us to go, right? So um, we almost, for the technology piece, we almost need to earn the right of citizens to be able to use this technology well. And so if we think, and we will have a moment on lessons from COVID, um, but citizens gave us so much permissibility and, and cooperation during that time, you know, doing your QR codes, doing your service, New South Wales, what have you, um, wearing a mask to Woolies, only sitting on a green dot. Like there was a lot of kind of citizen cooperation and trust in that. And I think that we're in a different place now as a result of that than we were before. Um, I also think, and I'm glad we've touched on sustainability already because I'm all about it, um, but there's definitely a role from government, firstly, in being a leader in the policy space, but also using its purchasing power as well. So we spend $34 billion um, on goods and services. So how can we use that toward more sustainable um, kind of societal outcomes, if you will? And if I could just do an analogy, which I jotted down um, to remind myself, um, to fashion, right? So 
One thing I've been thinking a lot about is circular economy. For those of you who don't know, circular economy is where you actually, um, I think our our um, policy is called too good to waste. So it's about actually, you know, using resources more efficiently, um, both through designing that from the outset, but they're also in kind of reusing them. Um, and when I was... Uh, um, facilitating the panel at Fashion Week last week. I was like this turtle <laughs> dressed by Bianca Spender. Anyway, so that was wonderful. Um, but we talked a lot about circular economy in the context of fashion. And for uh, I was actually shocked by the statistic that Australians can, are the second largest consumers of textiles and we buy on average 27 kilos of new clothing a year and this fast fashion is not helping and we dispose of 23 kilos of clothing a year on average, um, and 75% of people throw away clothes within a year of purchasing them. So um, in that sector, we're looking at, you know, we're already starting to kind of try new things on reusing materials, including, you know, there's a pilot called Sustainable Schoolwear where they use, and I have two kids and I throw out a lot of school uniforms, they reuse school uniforms to make school desks, right? Now, if we're to transpose that into the city's context and it's about smarter use of materials, and I'm talking to people who know a lot more about it than I do, there is a lot that technology needs to play even in kind of tracking and tracing materials and how they're used and how they can be reused and, and that kind of smarter engagement for sustainable outcomes. And I know less about built form and a tiny bit more about fashion, but I just think there has to be a comparison in there somewhere. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it is certainly the case that Circular economy is a is a key principle for the Western Parkland City Authority and the work that they are doing um, with Bradfield and and the Aerotropolis out there and you know the way they think about utilities, um, the delivery of utilities, the grouping of utilities. Um, there are you know there are sustainability outcomes, but there's also um, there are also potentially some um, some financial savings if you do things better. Um, now it's not always the case that you can do a greenfield city. So you know one of the one of the things that um, you know one of the things that governments need to grapple with is they need to grapple with how do you how do you um, how do you take an existing city and how do you move that up the curve? How do you deploy technology in a way that will produce really good outcomes for citizens? It will be sustainable. It'll improve well-being and or productivity. There's a big question about who pays for that and how do you procure it, which we can chat about in a moment. Um, but there are also some opportunities where there's a Greenfield's chance to just do things better, do things smarter. And you know, they talk a lot about um, some of the developed countries, uh, developing countries, just leapfrogging, um, leapfrogging the stages that we've all been through, which I think is, um, yeah, which is really interesting as well. Um, I mean, I guess lessons from COVID very quickly. Are there any quick lessons that that um, that that that, uh, that Tibor you have around technology and cities that came out of COVID? We really didn't have any particular lessons in that regard other than the fact that from fund management business point of view, we were able to close two major transactions and um, that was um, somewhat um, very pleasant for us because we we really didn't know when it was starting if how it will impact business and I'm sure that every organization and person in this room had similar thoughts as uh, what is the level of unpredictability and how we can manage that personally and in a business context. But what's, uh, what has, um, I think, reaffirmed for us is that uh, none of the major trends uh, really has been uh, 
in the long term has been that impacted by COVID. What, what we hope for and what we work towards is that any economic recovery is very uh, strongly tilted towards um, really being aligned with other major trends. Uh, so just like the European Union is really looking at uh, um, uh, new opportunities around uh, really accelerating the, um, uh, some of the um, uh, energy transition solutions, um, in, in Europe, as, as a part of a recovery program, I think there is there is a real opportunity here in that, and um, we uh, are certainly are very. If you're interested, we put together a red paper on uh, hydrogen and uh, all the opportunities that we see globally. Um, and uh, from that perspective, uh, we uh, just hope that the economic recovery uh, can be very much um, aligned to sustainability and infrastructure opportunities. And there is there is a really interesting one there on sorry uh, on transportation. Uh, I think that that's one sector that uh, has um, uh, I guess where Australia is um, quite different to the rest of the world uh, in, in terms of um, the progress that we made to date. And um, regardless how far or how little has been done to date, uh, we we live in a global economy. Ten years from now, uh, it will be probably quite unusual to buy. A, car with an internal combustion engine. And so we uh, really want to see um, how to, from an investment point of view and from every aspect of regulation, policy and um, and, and user acceptance, that, that uh, Australia has a very large opportunity to look into its uh, renewable energy potential and deploy that not just uh, in terms of the energy uh, electricity networks, uh, but uh, really deployed in other sectors such as transportation. But Tibor, is that principally about electric vehicles is that is that the main focus well it's for us it's uh, it's uh, definitely one part of it uh, but it's uh, we we work strongly on uh, on on the assumption that uh, hydrogen has a role to play in in the energy transition and uh, we are connected with just about every everyone that is uh, really uh, that has pivotal role to play in the global transportation in terms of the passenger cars, truck OEMs, and their thoughts about and how they're going to change their fleets over the next 10 years. Yeah. Harvey, do you have a perspective um, on Yeah, so COVID changed everything um, for us. Um, it, you know, we've, we've for seven or eight years talked about these structural shifts that were going to occur in the real estate industry, um, and we thought they would happen incrementally, but everything was accelerated from um, the way we consume and interact with our office-built form to the way we think about that um, divide between um, e-commerce and physical retail. And what it did for us was the, our primary funders, who are major landlords and, and developers and operators, they um, understood the change differently. And so, you know, during during COVID, we learned that we could work. Most people that work in the city didn't have to come into a city anymore. Um, but equally, we learned that we liked to be around people and our colleagues. So um, from the office being dead in March last year to the office being repurposed to what it looks like now is a really exciting proposition that we're dealing with. And so we now get to think about the office not as a space of individual productivity, but this space of collaboration, the space of culture um, and, and a whole bunch of different things that can now um, happen in these environments. So for us, COVID, um, you know, it's obviously had a devastating impact across the world from a health perspective and financially for people. But when it comes to a t as a as a technology investor for the built form, it's probably been the greatest catalyst we've ever experienced. 
And Amy, you, you mentioned permissibility. Did you want to? There's a bit of that. Um, I think my when pondering uh, COVID learnings from COVID in the context of technology, one thing I would say is New South Wales's uh, successful world class handling of the pandemic was very much aligned to our technology response um, and our ability to engage with digital because it really was our QR code, our tracking, our tracing, our ability to get on top of it. That is all a technology response. And so, and that's the reason we could keep our technology open. And that's the reason we're all sitting in this room having this panel discussion, right? So to me, um, if we can apply that digital ideology to our everyday going forward, then we get to be not just the leading state in Australia and the world actually with respect to the COVID response, but with respect to technology and digital enablement more broadly. Um, the only other comment I'll say is I think COVID obviously showed us what our values are and I think that was a really special piece for me. So um, the community localization and people appreciating their local communities, um, you know, and our need for con connection and belonging, including in public space and open space, our rediscovery of um, active transport, you know, you'll remember the sales of bikes. You couldn't get a bike for level money because 106% increase in cycling, 62% um, of people walking more, like our, our renewed focus. I've never used the word sustainability and net zero and all of that more since, since COVID happened. So there's actually some really quite special kind of well-being outcomes that have come and, and I just wonder how we kind of use this discussion to double down on some of that as well. Yeah. Um in, in a lot of respects, and with the benefit of hindsight, the fact that New South Wales was able to sort of ramp up a QR code through Service New South Wales and do the contact tracing well, um, in, in with the benefit of hindsight, perhaps not a surprise in the context of the embrace of sort of all the work that Victor Dominello has been doing with customer service around making Service New South Wales a real thing, digitising driver's licence, just making government digital government easier, making it normal. Um, and so without really knowing what the starting point was in the other states, perhaps not surprising that they've been struggled to embrace it or, or catch up in that way. So these things, I think, um, you know, one thing begets another, begets another, and you you actually embrace it and it becomes part of the culture and the foundation. I think that we've all benefited from that, as you say. Yeah, having a centralised having a centralised um, QR code system has made contact tracing, which has made the government braver about keeping the economy open when other governments have clearly gone and 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 felt they have to go and shut it. So um, I think it's it's something that that this government. Has tried to build into its um, into its organising principles, and and we've reaped some benefits of that so far. So, um, I'd like to open it up to some questions from the audience. But I, I just had one um, one question um, really quickly for each of you. Is there, Avi? You might have already answered this, but you know, what what is the most exciting? And for you, it's bricks. But um, what is the most exciting? Tech, sorry, bricks. Whoops. Um, concrete. What's the most exciting technology that you've come across for the future of our cities or that you would like to see deployed in our cities? But but maybe a short answer from all of you on that. Do you, Amy, have you? I can tell you what, yeah. So one thing, one thing that's interesting, and I think it was exacerbated by COVID, is that our, and this is in the context of our 24-hour economy commissioner who's in the room or our nightmare, um, but the going out as a result of 
technology, our going out economy is in direct competition with our staying in economy, right? So our staying in experience is two clicks, Uber, it's Netflix. So how many clicks is it to have a going out experience? And when I click on Netflix, maybe it should pop up and say, or out. And I click that and it can give me an Uber in five minutes, a restaurant in half an hour and a show in an hour and a half, right? And so the going out experience and making that part of who we are, um, yes, it's kind of to do with our phones and stuff like that as well, but there's a whole realm of stuff around technology and space, right? So there's um, safety of our public spaces and being able to have alerts when there is kind of distressing activity occurring. There's um, me being able to have a seamless um, travel to and from these places. It would be convenient if my QR code could also then be used to um, order my food and pay it as well. Um, and we can even start to get into some augmented reality as we engage with our spaces. And that includes, you know, street signage and just that really cool customer experience that we're not there yet, but I don't think we're that far off. And it'll be kind of um, belonging and community because we'll be out and we'll be doing stuff, but it's highly personalized as well in the way we engage with our space. So all I know is, um, well, we're going to get better. Well, I, I mean, the other one is the Dine and Discover vouchers uh, through your, your Service New South Wales app. So, it's, you know, it's another example of how these technologies are helping us do that, government supporting that. I do think it would be good if the Dine and Discover voucher popped up when you walk past you the shop. You have to then, download it as uh, well. When you walk past the shop that was was signed up, yes. it would it would remind me. Uh, <laughs> it would remind me because I keep forgetting. But um, maybe that's reflection that my wife and I and our two kids don't get out much. Um, um, Avi, anything other than concrete? <laughs> um, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's so hard for me, right, because I get to see so many cool technologies every day. Um, got to give Priestkin a plug. He, um, uh, Kieran's here, but then he's going to get to talk to you about um, fantastic things and um, on-edge AI vision systems. But I think um, one really interesting area, given there is a bit of a legal audience here as well, is um, artificial reality and how what that's going to be and the property rights attaching to it. We are actually um, shortly going to announce an investment in the space where um, we – Start. We're starting to see that um, a, a geotagged um, artificial reality experience should actually belong to the physical asset owner, and therefore, if somebody wants to advertise on it or do something with that asset, that asset owner should have a property right, therefore the ability to monetize it or to stop someone from doing something on it. So artificial reality, for those of you who don't know, simplest form is where you put a mobile phone up or some kind of device which shows you a digital experience, uh, um, usually on a, on a physical uh, physical asset. What we're starting to learn is that this is going to be a really, really valuable property right. So um, we're looking at what this would mean from a property register point of view. We're looking at what this would mean from a monetization point of view. Um, all the citizen benefits that are going to come from um, having artificial reality experiences as you move through our cities. Um, this is going to be a really major shift, I think, over the next um, three to five years. So I I'm, I'm really excited about all the lawyers are licking their lips. Yeah, I, so, um, yeah, look, if anyone a wants to... A whole new property class out there. To, this is going to be a very valuable property class. Um, and Tibor? Uh, sorry, you already covered everything that is sexy, so I'll go to <laughs> something that is perhaps much less so. But in terms of energy transition, this country already leads the world in terms of the adoption of rooftop solar. And um, what will follow as a wave is really energy storage solutions. And that will be at all levels of the energy system. 
in that space, there are some good Australian companies, and uh, it's my hope that we will see uh, not only some leading position in this country, but uh, some of this technology will be enabled through uh, local research and commercialization. So that's one sort of really important and large area. The second one is, sorry, is hydrogen, and this is this is a really big area, and, and it's um, LNG export business, which is worth 50 billion or so dollars a year to this country in exports, is uh, it took 40 years uh, to build to that level. Um, if if there is a future where this country can export um, primarily renewable energy, it will have to be in a molecule form, and uh, it can be rather than being extractive industry, uh, it can be an industry where it's fully manufactured product, where the input is. Uh, green electricity and water, and through a process of electrolysis, uh, you can manufacture a product that can be shifted internationally to large um, energy-importing countries. So that's pretty exciting in terms of what is um, what opportunities are ahead of us. It's not so much about city infrastructure, but it is, um, and it, it, this is really uh, nationally important. Um, so that's uh, those are sort of big areas that uh, are on our radar. Yeah, no, they're great. So I invested in two technologies last year. One was we put solar panels on our roof and the other was we got a worm farm. Um, um, both um, need a battery. Yeah, we, need a, we, we may need a battery as well. Um, uh, so I just want to check, are there any, probably have time for one question from the audience and then I was going to introduce Kira McKenzie, who's one of the companies that Taronga um, is working with at the moment to just give us an example of one technology that's quite interesting for the future of our cities. We're going to have two others, but they weren't able to join us in the end. Is there a question from the audience, Alice, or maybe the lady at the back? Thank you. Um, Hello. Uh, A bit maybe left field, but something I've been kind of covering um, personally um, during the last year. Have you seen any ideas or technologies that are utilising cryptocurrency or NFTs and the ways in which um, I guess there's some NFTs that have coupled with, say, um, I think the NBA um, is selling like snippets of highlights and so on and people are buying into that. And um, there's a guy, Draw Poleg, um, from New York. I think he does some ULI stuff and he really is looking in looking at the way that NFTs um, might be used in real estate to um, kind of fractionalise our work as well as um, the spaces that you occupy. Um, Have you seen any, I guess, things that have popped up over the last year during COVID that might be utilising that in the property sector? Avi, I don't know. You might be best. Uh, You have the highest chance of being able to answer. uh, Yeah, so... um, I guess for those of you who don't know, um, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. Um, this is the whole idea around um, kind of another blockchain derivative. So maybe if I take it back a step, it's really um, we've seen a, uh, a lot of our work right now is understanding what relevance the blockchain will have to real estate transactions. So in addition to investing into technologies on the one side, we invest heavily or think about um, operating models and how the world will look in the future. Um, so for fund managers, for um, transactors of real estate, the blockchain is going to, we believe, have an impact and we're trying to understand exactly what that impact is. Um, there are many companies in the, in the world that have started to um, 
fractionalize the the asset, um, allowing um, a theoretical direct investment by an individual, um, potentially a challenge or a threat to a fund manager, potentially an opportunity. So we're looking at it from that perspective. Um, that there's some, there's definitely some interesting things going on in that space. Okay. But if that answers the question, do you have a view? Got a, would you do you have a, an answer on that? Or I, no. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> this end is a bit empty. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do you have a, a view, table? Uh, not on NFTs, but in terms of blockchain and infrastructure, there are definitely some interesting areas in terms of um, areas such as uh, how, to, how to manage certain aspects of energy transition. So we're looking at opportunities, uh, how you can uh, really look at verifiable transactions when it comes to differentiating between green electricity versus uh, other sources and how to, that can become a part of the, if you like, a reporting value chain that exists in for investors in infrastructure. And we're also looking at what is the way to optimize energy usage in large precincts, which also is based around blockchain, blockchain technology where each individual user is... Um, um, can really bid uh, for what, what is the uh, amount of energy that, that is used in a precinct sense and, and is optimized within one and generating regions with renewable energy and storage. So there is, there is quite a lot of blockchain, how it, um, how it is used, how it will be used in certain cases in infrastructure, but certainly um, I think NFTs and innovation of that kind is uh, it's not a primary focus in infrastructure. So, um, look, we're coming up to time. I want to do two things. I want to very quickly thank our panel and just say thank you so much to each of you for coming along and sharing and sharing your perspectives, which I think it's, as I said at the beginning, and I really feel strongly about this, these issues um, and their solutions are going to involve the convergence of different people with different skill sets um, who bring those together and work together to form those solutions. So I think the answer is always going to be in getting, you know, it's certainly not going to be in having a panel of lawyers um, or um, but former lawyers um, and and Tibor is is the way to go, I think. Um, and, and so thank you to each of you. I've learned so much um, from the different perspectives and I'm sure everyone else in the room has. Um, I would like to invite Kieran McKenzie up, who's from Prescient. Um, Prescient is one of the companies that Avi's been working with that's involved in an AI, AI vision system, which we think is a like a, an example of a technology that could be, do you want to use the speaker over here maybe, that could be, um, that, 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 that may have greater uses in, in cities moving forward. Kieran's going to speak for a couple of minutes and then we're going to have, um, then we're going to have some um, beverages and, uh, and, and refreshments for the, the opportunity for people to stay and have a chat. So thank you very much. We're really, really um, grateful to see you all today. Hello. Thank you. Uh, I know I'm in between you and drinks, so I'll keep it very short. <laughs> Uh, Pressin is an artificial intelligence vision company. At a very, very high level, that means that we can see objects and we understand what they are and then can do something. And I'm slightly biased for obvious reasons, but this will revolutionise entire industries and it has some really interesting uh, impacts for the delivery, um, the construction and the operation of uh, cities and fixed infrastructure. So we started a it's a bit of a terrible story how it started. Uh, my co-founder, uh, Nathan, he has three brothers. One of them rolled a 400-tonne mining truck off a cliff because you can't see out of them. One was hit by a truck on a mine site and is now permanently 
on disability and the other one was hit by a truck on a construction site. Now that's pretty bad luck, I will grant you, uh, but every year there are about 150 fatal accidents in the Australian workplace and 100,000 serious accidents. And we originally came out of Langer Rourke's R&D team and like all heavy industries, that's all we care about basically. Uh, so our first system is a safety system designed to stop that because we have a moral and an economic obligation to do better than that. Uh, so Blindsight is the name of the system. It's up the back there. That is about the 50th system in the country. Uh, so I encourage you to have a play with it. It's designed to be installed on mobile plant and fixed infrastructure to stop accidents and possibly more interestingly, automate health and safety reporting. So that's what Blindsight does as a standalone system. But if you take a step back and think, what are we doing? We're seeing things, understand what is in doing something. Uh, the implications for cities and infrastructure. Uh, we could go one way down to the Chinese route, if I'm allowed to say that, where everybody's being monitored at all times. Or we can pick off certain problems and do those, which are really interesting. Uh, so we're doing safety at the moment. That system can also do security, can do QA, QC. It's now just looking at cracks in concrete, for example. I can do monitoring, it can do optimization and all sorts of things. So as you're playing with that over some drinks, I uh, encourage you to have a think about how you could use that kind of system because, as I said, anything you can do with your own eyes and brain, you can now automate away, which is creepy or really exciting depending on where you go with that. So thank you. That's all I'll say. Feel free to come back. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.